0: This week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Chris Hendrick. Welcome back to the Fraudology podcast. I am so grateful to have John Mattis join me again on Fraudology. John joined me, I think it's been, I didn't look it up first, but probably about a year and a half or so since the last time. Uh, So I'm so glad that he's uh, able to come back and join us and talk a little bit more about really the importance of aligning with the business and kind of having the business first and fraud second. And I'll let him explain it so much more, but it's something that I feel like is one of the drums that I beat a fair amount, but it's always better to hear it from people who are on the front lines. And uh, while John has had over 20 years experience in in in-store loss prevention and security, as well as e-commerce fraud and trust and safety in both retail and marketplaces. Uh, he was most recently at uh, Etsy as their director of Global Risk and Fraud operations and he's now the founder and principal consultant of Blacklight Security. Uh, John, I always appreciate our conversations. Thank you so much for making a little time to talk with me and thanks for coming back.
1: Thank you so much I love uh, I loved our last uh, program. In fact, I think I talked so much we had to do two episodes but <laughs> we did I promised to be way uh, less words
0: this time. <laughs> Direct to the point. <laughs> well, I mean, you're—that's like the pot in the kettle, because I'm, you know, I'm right there with you. So that's why I know, totally fine. And actually, um, I think a lot of why I often do end up doing two episodes the first time I have a guest on is because it's so fascinating just to hear how people get into this industry and what they like about it, and hearing their career story. And that's like, but I also want to learn something from your experience to. You know, apply to my own life, and so that's usually what ends up happening. But now I can just be able to direct people to the you know first episode I had you on, and it'll be in the in the episode notes for today's episode. I'll put a link in there to what episode it was, so if they want to go back and hear you know your uh kind of your journey and fraud and a lot more specifics, they can. And now we can just dive into the details. So you and I were just talking. You know, you've um recently had a change in uh your career path. And, uh, we were just kind of talking about, you know, what that's meant for you and what you've learned over that. And I'd love for you to, you know, share what you'd like to about that before diving in a little bit to, you know, what it's, what it means to be a business person first and a fraud person second.
1: Sure. Sure. And you know, it's, um, you know i think the your point on you know like having a very different type of background and experience um and sort of what led me to the fraud world and and the fintech world is you know i'm a financial crimes investigator by trade that's how i started in the industry catching bad guys um and i sort of went through uh the different types of jobs based on my investigations background with fraud because As you are starting to identify fraud trends, when you actually are able to identify suspects, you make arrests, things like that, you're identifying lots of vulnerabilities within the infrastructure, vulnerabilities on the platform that the bad guys take advantage of. And so, you know, being fairly outspoken, I would engage our credit partners on, you know, here's what we're seeing, here's what we could do. And that's sort of what led me into this role um, is um, sort of being... Uh, the voice of reason and also the the, the voice of uh, reality as to what was happening behind the scenes and where vulnerabilities lie, and being able to articulate that to our um, folks that ran credit fraud operations to try to make change. And that's sort of how I got involved in this. Otherwise, I, you know, was a, you know, hardcore investigator at heart, um, you know, and I you know, I, mean, I think I said this to you earlier is like, you know, I, I went through a whole reinvention process of myself, and that's sort of what led me into uh, the fraud management world. So, so what I do today is different than what my original career was, but the one thing that hasn't changed is my passion for what I do. I still love investigations. I still love retail. It's just a different type of retail and a different job. And one of the things that I know is really important in order to be able to reinvent yourself that way is to always be able to step back and say, at the end of the day, I am a business person first and a fraud person second. Now, people may raise an eyebrow when they hear that and they could either say, yeah, you're damn right, or... I don't understand that. I'd rather you be a fraud person first and a business person second um, until they really understand the context there because being a fraud person first works within your organization, within your fraud uh, organization where you're all peers. But in order to be able to collaborate with partners outside of your world, you need to be a business person. You need to make sure that their individual strategies, goals, priorities become your priorities so that you can build your fraud program around uh, what their priorities and strategies are. Otherwise, you'll always be a subject matter expert, the fly on the wall, so to speak, but you won't be able to engage uh, C-suite. You won't be able to get approvals on uh, whether it's capital expense, new programs, new products, new equipment, new technology, unless you can talk in the context of um, the C-suite, where they're coming from, what their business focus, because they're not thinking about fraud every day. They're thinking about selling. They're thinking about driving the business. They're thinking about uh, gaining market share on competitors um, and depend on you to be the subject matter expert. But it's more important that you adjust to their style Versus you thinking that you can have them adjust to your style.
0: So many good nuggets in there. I think uh, you know, shared this on the podcast before, and I know I've told you this before, but it's just such a good reiteration that you know. I often, once a fraud analyst, always a fraud analyst, and I'm and I'm similar, right? Where I've reinvented as well. I mean, the core through line is my love of fraud and and payments as well. I've actually started in payments before fraud. Uh, which gave me a pretty strong foundation, which I'm grateful for. And, you know, being able, that through line for me is that I love this industry, but what I've, you know, I started out as a practitioner and, you know, being um, an analyst and then a manager and then, you know, doing a special, building a special project or product for a very large online travel agency and, um, you know, getting to see that through. And then I did a little consulting actually for, you know, your Uh, you're one of your former employers uh, when they were first starting to accept payments online. And then, uh, and then I went on the supporting side, right? And I just fell in love with supporting merchants. We can't all do the same thing within the industry. And we need to be able to say like, what is it that I love? What's my superpower? What, what do I bring to this that nobody else does? And I think, you know, for you, you have so much experience on the investigative side and in you know, what we might call old school retail, or, you know, in person retail with all your time at Macy's, and then, you know, took that on to digital commerce at at Etsy for the last several years. And now working with, you know, different types of companies, you're seeing how much that can be of value too, because you pick things up. And, you know, you talking about just being an investigator first, I can see so clearly, while it might Seem to anyone outside uh, of our world that being an investigator and being a leader, you know, being an investigator of physical fraud and being a leader of a digital fraud, you know, unit is so different. It's not, but you're adapting and growing, and um, you know, being able to provide those skills and every type of group you work with, you're picking up on. Okay, that's what they care about. Okay, that's what they care about. And I often will tell people that the What I see, you know, from different people, not just the companies that they work for, but the people who are, there's kind of two camps in fraud leaders, right? And, and we all know that nobody understands or appreciates what we do 100%. Like that's clear, 100%. But, you know, if I haven't talked to somebody in several months and, you know, ask how is it going, you know, there could be such a difference between, you know, they don't understand that. They don't get it. They don't get why I have to cancel some orders. They don't get why this is important. They don't understand, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or I can't get a new vendor or I can't get anything else. And there's kind of like this And I don't want to say victim, it's just this frustration, right? But not productive. And then there's this other group that's like, you know, we're doing some hard things, but we're moving forward and here's what we're working on. And they usually seem fairly fulfilled and they're not really complaining about not feeling appreciated or um, understood because that isn't their core focus right now. Uh, It also isn't as strong, right? They're not feeling like they're just being put in a closet somewhere. And that differentiator is 100% aligning Fraud with the business. It's also educating people about fraud within your organization. Uh, when we released the Fraudology benchmarking report, that was clear as day. Is that was the biggest differentiator? We asked, you know, how often do you, you know, do you provide reports and updates throughout your company, you know, to different cross functional teams or to leadership, you know, about what's going on in fraud, or are you providing education and training, even if it's not as in deep as you would for your team. And for those people that were two thirds of them felt more appreciated and valued in their company than the other, you know, than if they didn't. So um, nail on the head, and I love the thought of talking about, you know, what they care about in their business. What does that look like from a practical standpoint, right? Because you're right, we have these parts of us that part of us is a subject matter expert. And it's easy sometimes just to get like locked in on what we know and what we care about and trying to fix the problem, right? But when I guess the first question I'd ask you is, do you wait, you know, when you're thinking of things as a business person first and a fraud person second, are you waiting for there to be a need in fraud before you're talking with other people in the company about what you do and why it's important? Or what does that strategy look like when you you first start working with a company?
1: Yeah. And it's just a matter of, you know, knowing the different players and getting to understand them and establishing rapport and being able to um, establish yourself as a collaborator, but probably most importantly is a business partner. Um, You know, so, you know, whether it's, Uh, customer service or human resources or finance or um, engineering product world, they have strategies on and based on their individual roles within the organization. Instead of going in and thinking, how do they fit into the fraud program? Think of it differently. In other words, how do I, how do my program, how do we fit into customer service? How do we fit into engineering so that they see you as a partner first, business person, and a subject matter expert second, fraud person? and when you can do that, then you get a different level of cooperation. They see you as a real business partner because their concerns become your concerns. You understand why it's a problem within an organization or something that's working or not working. How does fraud fit into that? How do you articulate how fraud either affects uh, or impacts a Program within an organization, and that's really the big piece of it. I could tell you mistakes that I've made early on. Is like there's no secret that I love this stuff, just like you do, and you could hear it in my voice. And I'm enthusiastic, and you know, it's like I love everything about investigations, fraud, catching bad guys, stopping, you know, um, you know, protecting profit, uh, impacting loss. When you go into a C-suite and you're meeting with either a CEO or a chief operating officer or a financial officer. That could come off quirky, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, they, don't, they don't have that same passion. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you got to sort of control yourself a little bit. Now you're that early on, um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, be that as it may. And not like, going you know, that's into the that was Like back in the old days, but, <laughs> you know, you want to be a partner to them. Thinking the way they do, although, you know, obviously they're doing it every day and they have the pressure to deliver results. Your job is to ensure that they deliver results. So, how can you be of service to them? Not going in there saying, I need them to help me. I need to help the C suite first. When I'm able to help them be a resource to them, then I will start to see the payback with uh, shared collaboration, shared feedback. Because they see you as a partner and a business person in the middle of it, and they will then depend on your expertise within that particular subject matter. So that's that's really the, 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 really the basic piece of it in order to build collaborations, building a part, building that partnership first so that they see you as a resource, um, not an inhibitor, um, or somebody that's going to stop the wheels of motion, so to speak but you will be a, a partner to them in driving their program. At the end of the day, it just makes for a much better relationship.
0: Such a good point. And I think, you know, just to add on to a couple of the mistakes I've made and one of the reasons I laughed when you talked about you know, maybe seeming a little quirky when you're talking to C-suite is. I absolutely have done that, um, and I I've learned my lessons, but I, more or less I think there's a certain there's a certain aspect that I've just learned to kind of own it, and I'm like, yep, I'm just a big nerd. You know, like especially when you have a podcast about fraud, like you really can't hide the fact that you're a nerd and you love this stuff. But I think you know it's for me some of the things I've learned about when speaking with senior leaders, especially. Um, you know, and you know this because you've you know, been working recently with you know, different companies and different leader structures. And, you know, sometimes, especially when a company decides to bring in a fraud consultant or a consultant to help them with these things, they may not have, you know, someone who runs fraud or it might be a default person or it might run up through technology or might run up through loss prevention or finance or something different. One is I, in the past, have assumed that they understand why fraud is important and understand why it matters and how it can impact the business under like oh they've got to understand how this can impact conversion and how this impacts this and that no chances are they probably have no idea they just think of your job as stopping bad guys and they assume that it's easy because you probably just have it in red blinking lights and you just press a button and then it's good you know so that's been one thing that I've definitely made the mistake of as well as you know only caring and talking about fraud I remember being in a room at the a senior leader for a, a luxury brand several years ago. And I was just kind of like going too far into the details because I care about them and I think that they matter. And fraud is all about the details, right? So, like, because that it's hard to just like sniff it and be up high when you're like, I really want to explain to you why this happens and da da da. And I remember her looking at me and it was towards the end of the day and she goes, Wow, you really enjoy what you do. <laughs> and it wasn't like it meant as a compliment. It was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I am definitely showing way too many of my nerd. And I was putting too much of my fraud self first and not saying, okay, you know, this is how this impacts this, and this is how this impacts that, and this is how it impacts your. Um, and you know, once they understand how it impacts their world, then they want to help you because they're like, oh, this'll help me. Um, you know, that's the difference, rather than coming in and saying, This is what I need from you and this is why I think you should care. And yeah. It's so different. Absolutely. It's so fun. I'm,
1: right. I'm not alone there. <laughs> I've definitely been told to tone it down a little bit. Tone down your enthusiasm a little bit.
0: Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... Other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created, as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack. For all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Uh, yeah, I think there's been a few times where the little bit was not included in the sentence for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we're good. Well, and I think part of that too comes with, you know, the ADD or, I mean, for me, it's ADHD. So I do have like that hyperactiveness <laughs> that you add the hyperactiveness with the passion and it can be a lot. But I think that's the biggest challenge for us is, you know, we know why fraud's important. We know why it matters so much, but trying to get to explain it to the business. What are a couple of the high-level things that you've found, or maybe not high-level, maybe it's details of, okay, when I go in and I'm talking to a leader that, you know, is looking at the whole business, right, end-to-end of everything from, you know, customer acquisition costs all the way through to, you know, every piece of the business, what are some things that you've found that when you relate fraud to them in a way that they understand that it kind of becomes a light bulb and, and opens doors to more conversations?
1: Yeah. And that's just a matter of, you know, taking whatever the particular fraud is and, you know, if, let me explain it this way, you know, for, you know, a chief financial officer, you know, they look at fraud, they look at sales and, you know, in their mind, it falls into different buckets. You know, so you got your sales, you have your operating expense, you know, you have a loss bucket um, and you have a fraud team that's going to try and impact the, the fraud bucket. Um, but at the end of the day, you want to be able to show how a particular fraud metric is impacting other buckets within the organization that is impacting profitability other than just loss. So a great example is, and I've done this multiple times in my career in, in regards to account takeover in the, fr- in the retail fraud world as a customer, you know, as a paying customer, probably the worst thing that could happen to you, absolute worst thing that could happen to you in your relationship with a retailer is to have your account taken over by a bad guy, right? So what's the negative effect of that? So we typically look at it as here are the fraud losses associated with account takeover. What is the future spend impact of ATO. In other words, if ATO, if account takeover is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you as a customer for a retailer, if you fall out of the mix, meaning, you know what? This was such a bad experience. I'm done with this retailer, I'm gonna go someplace else. Or, you know, I used to spend $500 a month at this retailer. Now I spend $100 at this retailer. Unless you're able to articulate that this is impacting your customer, not only for the negative, but you're looking at it as a lost customer and loss of market share. Because that's all it's down to. You know, you got lots of retailers out there that are slowly disintegrating. However, you still have the same customer base. So... You're not going to generate new customers unless you take them from somebody else. So you don't want to lose them from your customer mix. When you start talking in that language, there is a much different level of listening. And comprehension is probably not a good word, but they're much more sympathetic to the cause because now they see this isn't just going into the fraud loss bucket. This is going in the fraud loss bucket and we're going to have less sales because we have customers that are dropping out. Now I've seen on the high end, I've seen as high as a 60% dropout rate on a customer that had a really bad ATO. In other words, 60%, you lost 60% of your clients. Now, cool. Um, So if you're able to articulate that to the C-suite, there's a much different level of uh, cooperation partnership, because now you are speaking their language versus getting them to speak your language.
0: I love that. And... Uh, Just kind of drilling down on that a little bit more with some more specifics. I mean, I absolutely subscribe to all of that. And I think that's the difference, right? Of the difference between saying we have account takeovers happening and this is bad, right? Like, you know, our customers are, are, you know, upset. There's obviously an impact to customer service. They're calling into customer service and they're mad. Okay. Well, in the fraud manager's perspective, they might be saying everything else, right? They might be in their mind. They know it's going to impact the spend. It's going to impact how many customers they have, all of that. But if they don't connect the dots and they don't say, this is going to impact the customer's lifetime value, and this is going to impact our, you know, percentage of customers who come back. In fact, you know, out of 100% of our customers that have, you know, an account takeover or their account is hacked as, you know, other people call it, then, you know, 60% might leave, you know, that when you start to do that, and it would be better if you could say if you could do some internal data analysis to say when we've you know we've taken a group of customers that had account takeover and we've seen that their spend goes down by x and then you can be able to multiply it and say okay if we don't get this under control and our account takeovers continue to rise we're going to have you know percentage you know x percentage impact on lifetime value well your business is calculating that they're counting on those customers to come back they've already made assumptions in their Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. their sales plans and their not predictions what is it called Um, forecast yeah forecast yep they've already made calculations in their forecast and their sales plans that those custom they can just count on that revenue And so often, so much of the business is focused on the beginning, right? Getting new customers. Well, you can also use that and say, hey, when we have this happen to a newer customer, we're not just losing their lifetime value. We're also losing what the marketing department spent so hard to get customer acquisition and chances are they're paying 30-50, you know, per customer to acquire them. We need to loop that in as well, and it's not just about loss, it's about impact. And here's the impact to the business, and here's the impact to the things you care about. Suddenly, you know what happens? Right? Their ears perk up and they're like, "Oh, we need well, what do you need?" Uh and you also get called into a lot more meetings, you get asked for your opinion a lot more because they realize, "Oh, this matters." Like more than just catching bad guys more than just LP in a in a physical goods store this matters so much more yeah absolutely and at the end of the day you want it, you want a seat at the table yes you, know, you want your fraud
1: prevention program your risk operations program to have a seat at the table where decisions are being made you know so take the ATO discussion to the next level not only is it impacting future customers but you know what's the root cause so the root cause is probably some vulnerability on your platform some vulnerability or lack of control in your login uh, and password process and validation process. So the answer is typically, let's put more controls in place. The byproduct of that is friction. So we don't want friction. You know, I want... I look at it as two different things. Either you have positive friction or you have negative friction. Login controls, the amount of time it takes, the amount of work it takes to be able to log in is considered a negative friction. But it could be marketed as a positive friction because we take your protection of your identity and your account so important that we're doing this. In a perfect world if we had a better way of doing it and the technology was where it would be invisible with no latency at all, we would do that. But right now this is what we need to do in order to protect you. We don't market it that way. We right. just look at it as the negative. It's going to be an extra step. Now they got to go back into their uh into their text and get a magic link and then use that to to log in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's considered a friction versus being marketed as a positive friction because we care about you as a customer, not just the sale you're making, but we care about protecting your information.
0: When you say marketed, do you mean marketing it internally with other stakeholders as you know, we don't see it as friction? It's actually the ability to you know, protect our customers and that you know, extra half a second or whatever it is, you know, in milliseconds or seconds or extra three seconds or whatever the extra step is going to help our customers X, Y, Z. And here's, you know, how, or do you mean market it to our customers and saying, you know, this is going to take an extra few seconds, but the reason why we do this is because we want to keep your account safe. Right. It's a little bit of
1: both, but if I really had to lean into it, you'd want the customer to buy into it first. Because if the bu- if the customer buys into the marketing that they're being protected, that sells your internal group. Yeah, that's true. The other way around is trying to sell your internal group without getting the buy-in from your customer, and that's just roadblocks everywhere. You know, and that's the worst thing as um, a fraud executive is trying to get buy-in. You'll much better get you'll, you'll have much better buy-in if you have customer buy-in first, or agreement, or common sense tells you that there's no way. The average customer's not going to buy into this because we're buying, we're telling them we're protecting their best interest first. So it's a big marketing campaign. I haven't seen a
0: lot of retailers do it. In fact, very few. Yep. When I do, I take screenshots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have a few. Um, and that's usually just as a customer, right? And I'm like, yes. But- I guess a challenge I have though in trying to market it to the customer, because I agree that that would be the best strategy, because then you have the customer's buy-in to kind of almost put pressure on, on internal stakeholders is that, you know, typically, usually, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the fraud department or trust and safety department doesn't have the autonomy to change messaging to customers, you know, at checkout, right? Or at login or at account creation. And so, you would often need some level of buy-in to say, you know, and maybe it's by suggesting an A-B test and saying, hey, prove me wrong here, you know, but I'd love, we, there is a need for an extra layer of security for accounts. Maybe 50% of the time we put some messaging around why, maybe 50% we don't. And let's measure the drop-off. Let's measure, you know, the impact. Let's see what we can do and or maybe you do abc test right where you do one with messaging one you know without messaging and then one where you don't have anything in place although you probably have the statistics for that other one for everything that's happened up until this point so making it simple just an ab test but um i guess my question in there was you know when you can't uh, At least in my my experience, I've needed some level of buy-in from internal stakeholders before getting customers unless I'm missing something and and there's a better idea out there. No,
1: you need the buy-in. There's no doubt about that they need to be able to understand what your role is in the organization you understand what their role is in the organization and there's a you know there's a give and take the bottom line is is that you know there are certain security controls that just need to happen and you know in the past they may have can be considered a negative friction mm. you know like authentication so you yeah implement TFA, there's friction there. but if you're able to articulate it and market it to your customer that the reason you're doing it is because of this um because this is a big problem in the industry we want to protect you it's important you have a role just as much as we have a role but you know doing it in a in a good marketing uh way i wish i had a, a really um sexy way of saying that, but, you know, the marketing people got to do their, they'll do what they do best to to, to be able to (laughs) sell it to the customer. But, you know, you do it that way. And then one way to measure it is, you know, adoption. So, you know, if you say, okay, here's the marketing plan around, you know, um, a uh, customer account and trying to have safeguards and security controls, and you're going to market two-factor authentication, What's the adoption rate post-message? Oh, is it immediate? Is it a slow climb? And, you know, anything where you see a a dramatic increase in 2FA adoption means that somewhere along the line, the customer said, hey, you know what? You're right. I agree. And I'm going to do this because I care about protecting my account, just like I'm going to give you a lot of pressure to make sure that my account is protected. So, That's where you can sort of see the give and take. And it has to be that relationship. You know, we can't be the bad guy all the time. It needs to be, we are business people first. We want to be able to protect our customers so they can keep shopping with us. Um, And the best way to do that is to be a full partner to them.
0: Hmm, Absolutely. And I think that is 100% how you not only get your seat at the table, but how you get to keep it, right? By thinking about the business. And it's important to do your research and understand, you know, what are the strategies of the business overall this year? Because some businesses, depending on their growth or where they are in their overall growth it is you know new accounts it's it's account growth right other times it's revenue other times it's you know signing up for a new subscription service or business model of some sort and so aligning you know what the messaging is about why fraud matters and this specific part of fraud you know using this ATO example is so key i think a couple of things you said there kind of it's important to say that in that case, it sounds like you're having two-factor authentication uh, be opt-in for customers. And that can be an uphill battle, but, you know, there are ways to have that be better by saying, you know, let's, can we even just put a, why does this matter, you know, hyperlink in, you know, (laughs) somewhere so that they can click if they want, or can we remind them, you know, can we provide a reminder the next time that they log into their account? Does it, matter you know are we able to link that up with a service that will tell us if the password that the customer has on file with us has been linked to other data breaches right and if that's the case then the customer gets this you know trying to have monitoring but being able to to your point and this is really the overall point of this conversation and i just want to keep driving at home is when you are out advocating for your for your purpose right and your your team and all of that it's leading with how does this impact the business? Why is it important for the business? It's not just, oh, I need this because it's, no, there's a business reason. What is it? And then being able to, how do I sell this to you know different people, depending on what they care about, right? Like to your point, the CFO is often going to care about the different buckets of revenue or the different buckets of, you know, loss and and finance and all that, but marketing and sales and growth are going to care about different things than development, et cetera. But overall having this message, okay, I understand that the business cares about this and here's how we can help, right? Maybe it's the fact that, okay, we care about growth and we've been actually canceling anything that looks like a reseller. Well, we just want to double check with the business that that is still the decision that you want to make and they're going to know how much investors are breathing down their neck or shareholders or whatever. They're going to know, you know, but being able to give them that option and saying, hey, here's an extra whatever it is. I just want to, re- you know, we've had this policy for a while. Just want to reiterate this, this or that, right? Is that kind of another example of how you'd see that that going, kind of that continuing conversation and continuing uh, partnership? Yeah,
1: and, you know, there's still some retailers out there that, um put their head in the sand, so to speak, that fraud is an issue. They don't talk about it. Yep. Um, So, you know, we are at a state, and this is my own thought process. I know you'll agree with me, but, um, you know, not everybody does. But consumers today are very fraud savvy. They know there's lots of fraud out there. If you don't talk about it, and you put your head in the sand that it doesn't exist here, that's going to have negative consequences when it does happen. So you could say, okay, I'm going to enforce 2FA across the board. You're just going to have to suck it up and it's going to happen Um, versus being a partner to say, we want you to sign up for it for this reason. Then you'll get a better feel for what your customer wants and doesn't want versus just strongholding your way in and forcing it on everyone and then getting a lot of negative feedback. So, you know, just you can just see all of those negative customer interactions and all the negative sentiment that along with it. So, you know, it's a difficult balance between both of them, but at the end of the day, having some transparency I think really has a lot of positive merit to it. I, I use a good example and I and I, I say this often, you know, I think PayPal does a good job with login controls and and transparency. You know, you can you know, you can log into your PayPal account and it's not going to ask for your passport because, you know, it recognizes you on this machine. It recognizes the fact that you've made 100 purchases and all 100 purchases were great. No fraud chargebacks from this machine ID and this IP address because this is a legitimate connection. So the signals are there. But there's transparency. They say it in their pop-up. It, you know, it, it comes back at you, so you see that there's they're doing the things that they need to do to secure your account, and they're also doing it in a way that makes it so that there's some frictionless experience there. So there's a great example of give and take. Create some pr- tra- transparency as to why it's happening, or don't do anything. Hey, I just logged into my account. I have to put my password in there. That doesn't sound good, you know. So because they didn't know. Um, but, you know, I think that the transparency back and forth between our consumer and the retail leadership team, not the fraud team, the retail leadership team is super important. And then the only other thing that, you know, I sort of say, hey, listen, we can uh, articulate it this way. When we look at fraud and we evaluate fraud as fraud professionals, you know, let's assume that worst case scenario is, is that you have a 1% fraud rate which is terrible. In the commerce world, that's terrible. Maybe if you have brick and mortar, it could be normal.
0: Right, right. Fraud loss rate as far as chargebacks and disputes and all that, like where you're getting rid of that rather than like the fraud attempt rate, right?
1: But again, 99% of your transactions are legitimate. Yes. 1% is not so good. Any good fraud management team is utilizing that 99% to help dictate what the 1% is. They're not just looking at the 1% and saying, Let me learn from this. You learn more from 99% of the transactions being legitimate than you do on the 1% that are not legitimate. So So why wouldn't you be a business person first and a fraud person second?
0: A hundred percent. And I think that too often it is easy when we live in just the fraud bubble and we are just focused on fraud and not surrounding ourselves with other parts of the business, you know, by choice also, and, you know, kind of isolating ourselves is that we are so focused on that 1%, right? We are so focused on, and maybe if we add up, you know, attempts plus the losses, it it might be, you know, four or five, 6%, hopefully maximum that your team is ever really going to see. Right? Whether that's declining or manual review or however you have your risk st- stack set up. But that you focusing on that is that is such a easy trap for us. And I've definitely made that mistake in my career, thankfully, way earlier. Uh, but when I'm partnering with companies that already have a fraud leader, oftentimes it's because they've been entrusted, they see it as their only job in the company. And it they is, they're, they're the only person in the company that is charged with protecting the company. And they see it as it's my job to protect the company. I need to take this so seriously that I'm just going to focus on this part and keeping it safe. But they aren't focused on it. Like, meanwhile, you have to, you know, if the tool you're using or if the way you're looking at things or, you know, everything else, you just have that focus, you can look up and go, oh. We're canceling 30% of the orders to save our company from 1%. Like, hmm, there might be something wrong with that. Like we need to be looking at other things like the business. I also used to tell my team, like, it's not the bad guys that pay your paycheck. It's the good guys. So we need to make sure that we're you know, getting their orders out fast, that we are encouraging them to buy more, that we are, you know, we can even tell marketing, Hey, these guys are trusted, like go for it. Here's like a trusted list of people, you know, go wild and, and partner with marketing rather than be, you know, these forces in between. And just, I think those are a couple of the biggest things that I see often is assuming everyone understands why fraud matters. And you know, focusing on fraud so much more than the rest of the business. And I, uh, when those two things happen, that usually, you know, is, is going to isolate you. And it's not, it doesn't mean you're doing a bad job, but it means there is a different approach to try. And I know for me, when I started learning the business side of e-commerce, that was when my mind opened up. And also when I, uh, was able to work with different types of companies you know being a consultant is not something that just anyone can do um who's you know okay i've fought fraud here i can just do it and i was telling you that earlier when you you know shared with me that you're you know doing some consulting now freelancing and you know keeping an eye out for you know maybe that next you know full-time position where you can build a program again but that you know you're doing this now i i told you like i i I'm not worried about you being successful, or at least I'm not thinking in the back of my head, oh, good luck with that. Like I have in some cases because A, you get the business side, you know, B, you're able to adapt to where the person is at, where the company is at. So even though, you know, we've both worked with, you know, Fortune 100 companies and, and they have big issues, there's also some of the smaller companies, they may not have the same issues, but you can apply it in different ways. You have to kind of explain why it matters and, and have the patience, which I know you have, as well as wanting to think outside the box and knowing that what worked for the last company you worked with isn't is probably not going to work for this next company. Um, And so because of that, I think, you know, I'm not surprised that you've already been keeping yourself busy uh, with some consulting uh, projects, you know, just in the last month or two. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to see where that goes, especially for companies that are in the digital space or physical and digital.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate that. And, you know, I've, I've come to learn that, well, Folks that have worked with me know that I have a lot to say, (laughs) and you you mean both, buddy. (laughs) It comes comes from a place of goodness, yes, Um, and you know. But frauds an emotional top, and you know. Sometimes you know the one percent of the world overwhelm the ninety nine percent of the world because you know there are you know there's nothing worse than somebody coming in and disturbing the party. But you really need to be able to put it into into a consensus of where we are learning and where we are not learning. Where no. are we growing? Where are we not growing? Um, you know, obviously, you want to drive down your fraud rate uh, to be very low. Um, but probably even more important than that is driving your false positive rate down. Think about all the good customers. They get caught up in the fraud um, controls. So, you know, that's not something that's always talked about. Right. You know, there's a a lot of good customers, they get caught up just in the pre-auth process before it even gets to the fraud control. Um, so, you know, the, the false positives are a problem in the industry just because the the nature of the frauds that we're seeing require just to have so much more uh, flexibility as to what you think is good or what you think is not good. You know, we want to be able to impact uh, as much loss as pro- possible with the least amount of good customers getting caught up in your controls at the end of the day, that is the most important thing as a fraud management person to be able to own. And um, because you're going to have your fraud attacks. It's just the nature of the beast. It's traumatizing. And people latch on to that emotion of it because it's a big loss at one time. And you know, especially if you're struggling with sales, You know, it's, a, it's an emotional topic that sometimes gets a lot more attention than it deserves if you're doing the right thing to fix the problem afterwards.
0: Right. So true. And it, yeah, it can be taken personal on accident. You know, I mean, it, it's easy to take it personally, right? If there's one person that feels like the weight of protecting the company is on their shoulders and there was a loss somewhere, they I see it all the time where they're overcorrecting themselves and the pendulum is swinging way too far to the left. And it's like, ah, we need to find the middle. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, well, we have to, you know, figure it out. But I think there, it's also a mindset thing where when I, oftentimes when I'm, Training or, or retraining manual review teams, it's similar to what I'll share with the fraud leader too. Is instead of assuming guilt and then, you know, thinking that a, an order or an account or a transaction needs to prove their innocence, it's so much better to assume innocence first and then make them prove that they're guilty. And that is just not only at the per, per order level, but also all the way through, right? And assuming that actually, we can't just assume that anyone that does this and this, then they're always fraud and they, I mean, we know all that, but it happens way too easily where it's like, we can see, we think that that looks risky. Whereas actually what are the, there are some very, very, simple things that could be causing that to look risky and it really isn't right so finding that balance is is so hard but I knew that this would be so you know difficult to wrap up uh but just in wrapping it up I uh I always enjoy our conversations john and thank you again for joining me um I would love I will absolutely include a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes for anyone to connect with you i uh, would love for anyone to do that uh and how are some ways that people can reach you or, um, you know, work with you and, you know, what you're, what you're working on now?
1: You know, my LinkedIn has become, uh, my second job
0: Yep. <laughs>
1: uh, anybody that wants me. I, I love connecting with people. I, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about all different parts of this industry. Um, so that's really the best place to get me, um, is LinkedIn and, you know, send me a note and I'll be sure to, you know, connect with everybody if possible.
0: That's great. Well, thank you again so much for joining me and, and actually I mean, behind the scenes, when this episode comes out, uh, you and I will be seeing each other in person the day after. So, yes. um, yeah, funny how that works out, but I'm excited for that. And yeah, I know. Uh, and I will, you know, look forward to having you back. And I, I uh, am also looking forward to, you know, seeing where this next chapter of your career uh, finds you, you know, both in consulting and in the full time, because I've you know, known you for a few years and, and gotten to see you reinvent yourself once or twice. And I know that each time, you know, that's what you say, but I think it's just more like adapting and growing rather than the full reinvention. But every time you're, you know, adding value to, and I, and I happen to know firsthand from a lot of the, you know, a lot of the people that reported to you and worked with you um, at Last the last, you know, two companies you've been at for so long, um, really enjoyed working with you and for you. So I have no doubt that you will land somewhere really cool. And, you know, you'll be picky enough to where it'll be something fun, and I'll probably be jealous. And then, you know, I'll get to learn it and live vicariously through you.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You know, it's a, I like to think of it as my next adventure. Yes. Uh, you know, this whole thing is a journey. And, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to the people. I, I love working with people. I've loved the last couple of teams that I've been associated with. Um, I think about them often and look forward to the next group of people that and talented folks that I'll work with. So, um, you know, it's just a labor of
0: love, so to speak. I think a lot of us can relate to that. Well, thank you again so much. And I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Thanks, Carice. Take care, everybody.